boy's got utter belief in him. And somehow she's found the acceleration. Welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. This is Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson and welcoming to the show. Ethiopian Olympic marathon trials are in the books. And Kenny Nisipakele isn't on the team, or is he? The Mexican national record 800 meters has fallen. Boston Marathon qualifying times are out. And this weekend's USATF Golden Games at Mount Sac look absolutely incredible as Evan Jago will return to the steeplechase for the first time in three years. NFL star DK Metcalf will run the 100 meters against the big boys. And most importantly of all, Donovan Brazier and Bryce Hoppe will do what Jonathan Galt has urged them to do all year long, race each other at 800 meters. And at the end of the episode, we've got a terrific interview with three-time Olympian, former American record holder, and head coach of the On Athletics Club, Dathan Ritzenheim. Good to be here. I see my genetic equal and way faster twin brother Weldon on the screen. And John, I see you with a great smile on your face. Is that because of Hoppo and Brazier? Or is that because the New England Patriots have found their franchise quarterback in the next quarter century? It's been a great week for you, John, hasn't it? Well, the Mac Jones thing is TBD. I am happy that we've got someone on the roster to challenge Cam Newton now. But I'm very, very happy about this Mount Sac meet. It's going to be terrific. We get to see this brand new, gorgeous facility. People forget we've got two amazing new stadiums on the West Coast. We've got Haywood Field, but we've also got Mount Sac, which was supposed to host the trials initially before USATF yanked them away. So that's going to be exciting. And DK Metcalf in the 100, an NFL star wide receiver lining up against some of the top sprinters in the country. I'm fascinated to see how that goes. We got, like you said, Jager. We got Sean McGordy taking up the steeple. He's trying to do what Jager did back in 2012. This meet is brimming with storylines. Can't wait to discuss it all with you guys. I'm excited as well, guys, but for a different reason. I'm the one who talked to Ritz, and we've got a new coach for Rojo to hate. Rojo hates every successful coach under the age of 40, and he's on the record saying his dream job would be to coach a pro group. And there's Little Ritz. I confer to him as Little Ritz because I remember him as a kid in high school competing. Just 38 years old, not even a year removed from running. He's coaching the On Athletics Club, and they've got four NCAA champs on the team, already having some initial success. And Ritz talked pretty big in this interview. He, he was talking how Ollie Horace got a talent set that five to ten guys in the world have, dropping Tim Chariot and Jakob Ingebrigtsen's name. He's also on the records saying that Alicia Monson could be like Dina Castor or Shalane Flanagan. It's a pretty fascinating interview. And I'm also, guys, excited because we've got a new team to root for, a new partnership at Let'sRun.com through the trials. The countdown to the trials are here. The trials, I think, are 45 days away. And the Olympics will be over in under three months from now. So under 90 days, the end of the Olympics and the countdown to the trials in Tokyo is now sponsored by On Running. It's the up-and-coming brand you were going to want to learn more about. Really cool company. I think it was founded, started by the modern-day Bill Bowerman, Olivier Bernard. I met him eight years ago at the running event in 
Austin, Texas, and now it's a global company doing really well. But he's just started. He was a world class duathlon, world champion. He started tinkering with shoes, and now has this global company has launched the On Athletics Club, and they wanted to tell the stories of some of their athletes more. So we're going to be doing that through the trials, and we're kicking it off today with Ritz. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Glad we have a new company backing us. Well then, though, I'm wondering if you feel any regret because I just saw the news. It's on the forum right now. Prickly prickly Bar or Prickly Pear? What's it called, John? Picky Bars. Come on, Robert. It's an energy bar that Lauren Fleischman and Stephanie Bruce and her husband or somebody's husband, I think it's actually Lauren's husband we're involved in. Yes, Lauren's husband, Jesse Thomas. <laughs> it's been sold for $12 million. So I'm just wondering, Weldon was back in the On Athletics founder's house like I don't know, seven, eight years ago. Weldon, do you wish that you had sort of impressed him? He could have hired you on, and then you could be working for On now. I'm sure if Prickly Pears is worth $12 million, On's got to be worth like $12 billion. So I don't know. I'm just giving Weldon a hard time because he started this show by giving me a hard time. For the record, I'm not really jealous of Ritz. A, I don't want to live in Boulder. It's too expensive. B, it's not high enough for, for proper altitude training. So, you know... And see, I was already a fan of Ritz when he was younger than me. So I don't have a problem with him sort of, some might say, surpassing me. But I, I don't think he surpassed me. Get back to me, Jonathan, when Ritzenheim is named one of the 50 most influential people in running by Runner's World magazine. So, no, I, I went to watch Ritz at the Penn Relays. I remember this. I drove up there. Like, I was out of college. I didn't give a crap about running anymore. But I loved Ritz. Went up there and watched him run and how he passed out and stuff. He would run like pre. He was a good runner. So. Wait, you're trying to claim you didn't give a crap about running, yet you drove to the Penn Relays to watch some high schooler? That sounds a lot like a guy who gives a, like three craps about running, at least, Robert. Yeah, well, he he moved the needle for me. He always moved the needle for me. So, Yeah, Robert, who knows? I, I would have told Olivier if, if he wants to get traction in the U.S. with the most influential runners, you need to start a track club, a running group. So he's doing that. But I'm late to the game. Roger Federer's investor and on. It's cool they want to partner with us, and, and we've praised on on this podcast because they're letting the athletes compete in an issue that they think is best. So they put the athletes first, and there's going to be some cool stories we can tell because Ollie Hoare is doing great, but he's Australian, so no guarantee on the Olympic team. And Joe Klecker, Alicia Monson, they're NCAA champs, but they're underdogs to make the U.S. team, and I think everybody likes the underdog and. You start talking to Ritz, and a guy like that who's so much success, he aims very high. So 30-minute talk with him. I think some of the coaches will like it because when you're a new coach, it needs to work pretty quickly for Ritz. On's uh, backing him for you know multiple years, I assume, but creating a group from scratch isn't easy. So it's good for him and good for the group that they are having initial success. But come July 1st, you'll, you'll really know how they're doing, right? Yeah, no, it's an interesting time to start a pro group right in front of an Olympic trials with people who, you know, you want to put on the team there with Monson and Klecker and even Leah Fallon has come back to relevance. The steeple team's going to be tough to crack. Yeah, I, Leah I Fallon think, ran her first steeple, I think, in four years, set a Drake Relays record. She's still a long shot to make the team. This group has benefited from COVID, right? I mean, this group was launched last summer. And exactly. now they can kind of get anyone they get in the Olympics is kind of a bonus, right? As much as we complain about COVID on this podcast, without Tokyo 2021, this group would have no shot of someone being in the Olympics. 
Yeah, we're going to publish soon two articles on the website related to this, sort of the getting ready for the trials, both written by John. And one is who has benefited the most from COVID and one who has been hurt by COVID. You didn't actually put this in, John, but you could put on Athletics Group because A, they took people weren't really sponsoring pros last year. It might have been a depressed market. They signed up all these people. But B, they wouldn't be in the Olympic conversation. They start a club, you know, in the middle of last year. It would have been too late. So they greatly benefit from that. And the other article is like, who's got the standard? Who doesn't have the standard? Who's going to get in on the U.S. team based on world rankings? We'll hear a lot more from Dathan Ritzheim at the end of the podcast. But guys, let's talk about running news from this week. I want to start with Bekele Gate. Can we call it Bekele Gate? Has it earned Gate status yet? We have a battle between the Ethiopian Olympic Committee and the Ethiopian Athletics Federation. The Ethiopian Athletics Federation on Saturday held its Olympic marathon trials over 35K in Ethiopia. They selected three men and three women to the team. Kenny Spikele chose not to run those that race, even though he claims he was healthy right now. And now the Ethiopian Olympic Committee has come out and said they are going to name Kenny Spikele to the team even though the Ethiopian Athletics Federation just said they're going to be sending the three guys, Shura Katada, Lisa DeSisa, Sisei Lemma, who placed in the top three in the trials. So there is a battle now between the Ethiopian Athletics Federation and the Ethiopian Olympics Committee about whether we will see Kenny Spikele in Sapporo for the Olympics this summer. Robert, how do you think this thing gets resolved? Well, I think it's a, am I allowed to cuss on here? A shit show. Um, you know, when I was talking to Teferi Debebe, my Ethiopian friend, the journalist that we used to be on TV and radio in, in Ethiopia and said won the green card and came to America and was working on Whole Foods, works at Whole Foods, but is, seems to be really happy, lived with my parents for a long time. He, I mean, he, when I was talking to him about this before the race, he was telling me about this big controversy going on between the Athletics Federation and the Olympic Committee. And it sounds crazy. Like Dirtu Tulu, who's the head of the Athletics Federation, former great runner, had taken the athletes out of the hotels they were training, went to the Olympic Federation, and were protesting outside saying he doesn't treat us well, blah, blah, blah. The head of the Olympic Committee apparently is a prominent dentist. He's been on like the basketball committee. He's had a long life there, but sort of being in politics and the head of all these sports committees. But um, it's kind of crazy. At some point after this protest, he was arrested, but now he's out of jail. And then he's... Got Haile Gebrselassie, though, and Burhan Adari, someone else, John Adari or somebody famous as his vice presidents now on his side. So he's got runners, like you've got Gab on his side and Tulu on the other side. I, I don't know, man. I mean, ultimately, it's kind of interesting. And there's been some talk about, well, we're going to boycott the Olympics. And then my friend Teferi was like, ultimately, he's thought that the government might get involved and just sort of pick a winner here. But then if the government gets involved, the entire Ethiopian team could be barred from the Olympics because the governments aren't supposed to be picking Olympic teams. So, ultimately, who who has control and who goes on the team? Right? Is it the Olympic Committee or the Track Committee? The government can just not get involved, but I assume the Olympic Committee is the one who can pick the team. I don't actually even know. But as a fan, I don't really care. I want Bikaili running. It's just much better. Even as a journalist, it's just much better. Much better story. So, sorry, third place guy. <laughs> Take a back seat. Can you imagine though, this in the U.S.? The U.S. I would be just so righteous that the third placer should be on the team. But yeah, this would be I, like I, the I, USOPC I, stepping in and saying, you know, Galen Rupp was maybe injured or something for the trials. It would be like the USOPC stepping in saying, all right, actually, 
Abdi, you don't get to go to the Olympics anymore. Galen Rupp's going in your place. So ultimately, yeah, it seems like that actually the Ethiopian Athletics Federation should be able to pick who's on the team and not the Olympic Committee. I think that's where the power should lie. That probably doesn't mean good for Bekele, but the guy's such a legend. I just want to see him give it one more shot. Well, correct. By the rules, the Athletic Federation would normally pick the team, although I guess the Olympic Federation could claim, hey, they changed the rules, but then maybe they should say, well, we changed the rules because we, we, we held a race for the first time because of the pandemic and we had a global delay of a year. So I can see sort of all sides to this. But let's talk actually about the trials race. I mean, when I was writing the week that was on on Sunday, I basically wanted to point out like who didn't make the team. I mean, you've got the first and second fastest Ethiopian. I think the first the three fastest Ethiopian men in history, right, John, are not on this team. Yes. The two fastest Ethiopian women are not on this team in Ternesha Dababa in um, Wurtnesh Defa Um So you have all these superstars that are on it, but it's not like they didn't pick a pretty darn good team, you know, or the top three weren't pretty darn good. I mean, on the men's side, you got Shura Katata, and, you know, he edged out Elisa DeSisa. And what I said to John is like, look, if they were going to pick a team selectively, they probably would have picked – well, it would be really hard because they've got so many studs. But – these two guys would have been two at the top of the list. I mean, Katata won London last October. And generally, if you win London, you're considered the best marathon in the world. So why wouldn't he be on the team? And then Lalisa DeSisa is the reigning world champ. So he's proven he can run in hot weather. He's won a bunch of majors before. He's a great championship racer. And then you've got Mosin S. Garamu and these guys that didn't even run the trials, Bekele, et cetera. But those are two very solid picks. The third pick on the men's side is sort of the weak spot to me. Sissa Lemai, 30 years old, never won a major, never finished higher than third. He's actually finished third a ton recently, finishes third in this race. So, you know, if you're going to kick somebody off or get somebody to step down, I mean, doesn't, does money ever play a factor? Couldn't Bekele, is this wrong? Give the guy like 50K and say, hey, buddy, get lost. Wow, that'd be kind of crazy, huh? To ask him to take a fall. Yeah, Robert, I mean, Bahanu Legese also not going on the team. He's, I mean, you, you mentioned he's one of the three. He's the second fastest Ethiopian ever at 202.48. He's the third fastest human ever. He, I mean, he was in as good a form as any runner in the world recently. He won Tokyo the last couple of years. He was second behind Bekele in Berlin when he ran his 202. So... He would have been, had a strong case to make the team as well, and he didn't make the team. And I don't see anyone clamoring for him to be on the team, but obviously he's not a three-time Olympic gold medalist and a, an absolute legend like Bekele. That's true, but he also hasn't indicated he's healthy. Yeah, I do I do think that it seemed like he was hurt, and that's why he didn't run the trials. So that's a, that's a good point. And then, you know, turning to the to the women's race, what was interesting to me is that well, I guess you can take A to talk about A, who made the team, and B, who didn't. I mean, w- which is more important, John? Well, I mean, I think there's a discussion that had to be both sides. I th- found it was interesting that Tiranesh Dababa wasn't even supposed to run this race. And she was supposed to run the NN Mission Marathon, and then she withdrew from that as well. I think it's, from what I understand, she just wasn't quite ready. You know, she gave birth in, at the end of 2019. And, you know, you have some women like Alphine Tulliamak who are coming right back from pregnancy. She gave birth in January. She's trying to run the Olympic marathon in August. But you look at, like, Sally Kipiego, it took her a couple of years to get back to 
her top level in the marathon. She gave birth in 2017. She wasn't really herself again until sort of end of 2019, early 2020. So yeah, Tirunesh Dababa didn't run. And Watnesh Degefa didn't run, who's 2019 Boston Marathon. She's run 217. So those are two. But again, you know, it's not like Ethiopia is really hurting for depth behind her. You know, they do have some very solid athletes who will be going. You know, Rosa Derege, Bahan Dababa, and Tigis Gurma is their team. So yeah, Gurma has run 219 twice. I mean, Dababa, she's run 218. She was the runner-up in Tokyo last year. And Rosa Derege, she won Valencia in 2019 in 218. She's won Dubai. She's had top three finishes in London and Chicago. You know, that's a that's a pretty competitive team, even without a couple of 217 women in Degefa and Dababa. Degefa and Dababa, they got good reasons for not running. Just sounds like they weren't ready from pregnancy. I think the thing that's interesting for me is... But Kaylee sounds like, oh, I'm fit. It's just too close to the Olympics. I can't run it. That just, to me, I don't like the logic of it. But I want to see him at the Olympics, so I'll give him a pass. But it's kind of the ultimate sense of entitlement. Like, oh, I'm too good for this race. I don't need to prove it. I don't want to go get beat. It sounds to me like you're afraid of getting beat. Look, well, the, the, no one really believed he thought it was too close. I mean, they, Kipchoge ran a full marathon, what, two weeks before that? But it was sprung on him at the last minute, so he wasn't ready for this race. It doesn't make a lot of sense for him to go in if he's not going to finish top three anyways. Well, just be honest with that then. Yeah, I also, I saw his agent, Joss Hermans, this is an an article that was um, published on New Age Sport, and it was from the agent France Press, which is sort of a wire service. And they talked to Jos Hermans and he said that Bekele refused to run because it was cold. The race took place at altitude. It was only 35 kilometers. These are bad conditions for him and which have nothing to do with those in Tokyo. So yeah, look, why didn't he run this race? I think it's because he knew he wasn't quite ready. You know, he might be healthy, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's really fit. And if his whole thing was, he was under the impression he was going to be on the team. And then in February or March, he learns about a trials race and he wasn't ready. He knew he was, he's like, look, all I'm going for at this point is Tokyo. I'm all locked in on that or Sapporo. And then he has to get ready and rush for this trials thing. Yeah. You know, we know he's had some injury issues and we know he's had consistency issues. It's probably not the best thing for him to be running this marathon on short notice or 35 K on short notice when his ultimate goal is a race in August. Any other thoughts on the Ethiopian trials or shall we move on, guys? I think that's enough Ethiopian talk for now. That story to be continued. Since we've been talking about a 26.2-mile race, let's move back down to the sprint. It's 100 meters. The USAT have Golden Games at Mount Sac. It's going to be an amazing meet on TV. But it's getting some mainstream publicity because the NFL... Should I call him a star, John? You're a big NFL fan. Anyways, wide receiver, DK Metcalf, who is known for being very fast, will be running in 100 meters. And I'm excited about this, John. I mean, everyone's talking about it. I even saw it on Yahoo, whatever, and debating how he can do. I've got to give DK props. Yes, he's very fast, but I don't think a lot of people would have – I think a lot of these NFL stars and – 
you know, sports stars like to mouth off about how fast they are and they don't actually want to race other people because more times than not, it's going to be embarrassing. So what do you think this guy can do, John? Well, I think it's great, Robert. And I agree. Like so far, I've sort of been trying to pay attention here. If he's been saying anything about it, I haven't heard him talking shit or saying anything. He's essentially his name's on the entry and he's going to let his legs do the talking. And I think that's great. You know, put up or shut up. He's putting up. So totally respect that. I think it's awesome. I think it's a win-win for the sport. We get a big name NFL player to come run Mount Sac, get a few extra eyeballs on the meet. DK gets to see how fast he really is. And that's going to be a question because this guy, now, if you've seen him, what he was famous for is this incredible rundown on an interception return against the Cardinals last year on Sunday night football. You guys, you've probably seen the play Buda Baker of the Cardinals, who is not slow, picked off a, pass from Russell Wilson, looked like it was going to be a pick six, and then Metcalf just out of nowhere runs him down and he had a huge you know, deficit to make up and he made it up. So after that, everyone's like, well, this guy needs to, you know, what could he make the Olympics? What could he do? And then his agent, there's a good article on Yahoo Sports about this, his agent actually reached out to USATF and was like, hey, DK would actually really like to run the Olympic trials, like run the Olympics this summer. How would he do that? And they're like, well, you got to get a qualifying mark and then you run the trials. And so now he's going and trying to get a qualifying mark. That's really hard to do because right now you probably need to run around 10, 20 or faster, I think to get into the trials and DK Metcalf. He never, he didn't run college, run track in college. He did run track in high school, but never the hundred. He was 110 meter hurdler and his personal best was 14.89 as a senior in high school. So, I don't know. I'm setting the over-under at 10.50. Apparently, he has been training in Arizona, so hopefully he's been working on his starts. He's a big guy. I mean, he's 6'4", 229. That is very, that's tall and heavy for a sprinter. Bolt, for comparison, was 6'5", and about 207 when he ran. But I'm going 10.5 as the over-under. John, you nailed it. 10.5 is what I was thinking in my head. And he runs 10-5, he'll get smoked in this race. But I'm very excited. We should have led with this. You know, if we want to bring new users to the podcast, we we scared them off with Ethiopian marathon talk right off the bat. But this is huge. Like, everyone's talking about it. It's on Pardon the Interruption. It's on Yahoo. I got an alert from The Athletic. This is the track and field race people will be talking about this weekend. But I think he's going to be just overmatched. I mean, he was a state runner-up in Mississippi in the hurdles. But even if you're state champion in Mississippi in the hurdles, you will get sm- in the hundred. You'll get smoked in this race. I, th- I mean, guys in Mississippi aren't running ten twos. So, how much faster could he have gotten? I just think it's cool he's giving it a go and and putting his money where his mouth is. Yeah, there are fifteen guys in this field. So there's going to be prelims, there's going to be a final, and his race actually is before the TV window. So I assume the the, race, the TV window starts at 4.30 on NBC. I assume they'll show his race, you know, on delay, but the live race, you know, the prelims will be before the TV window. Do you think he beats? No, 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 John. They need to make this live TV. They need to change the schedule. Come on, USATF. Get with the program. You created this thing. I want live TV. Stuff needs to be live. This is 2020. One, even like I would have, we got some super fast high school kids. They should fly one of them out there, put them in the race. Maybe even drop Shakari Richardson in this race. 
I want like total circus. Man, woman, high school, and DK Metcalf all racing each other. Well, Shikari Richardson actually is in the women's hundred, so I think it's going to be interesting who runs faster, Shikari Richardson or DK Metcalf. I think that's a, a prop bet we could get going. I want to know: Does anyone? Does any? Sorry, does DK Metcalf beat any men sprinter, and does he run faster than Shikari Richardson? This is idiotic, stupid question by Jonathan Gold. Yes, he runs faster than Shikari Richardson. That's a great point. Come on. This guy, he's a man. He's one of, one of the fastest NFL players. He's going to run significantly faster than Shikari Richardson. This is the perfect example of why we can't let transgender athletes compete in women's sports. I mean, the very best man is better than the very best woman. He doesn't even have to be the very best. But an elite high school the, the, the Actually, the best way to think about it is elite women's sport is basically the same as a fairly elite high school boys' sports. So he's improved since high school. He was pretty elite in high school. He will beat Shikari Richardson's. I think he goes under 10-5. I still think he gets embarrassed by the pros, but I'm excited that he's doing it. My biggest concern with him is his is his height and his weight. 6'4", 220, that's gigantic. Everyone, now I know Usain Bolt proved that you could be big and run fast, but he, most people aren't Usain Bolt. So, yes, he beats Shikari. Does he beat anyone in the race? I don't know. Maybe somebody pulls a hamstring. But, you know, I'm excited to see it. Someone on the message board was like, how do you get a lane? I'm like, I would give him a spot in the Olympic trials flat out. I don't give a crap if he hasn't earned a spot. But we used to see this all the time at Milrose. They used to have NFL guys race all the time in the winter. You know, even it wasn't that long ago because I was dating my wife when we watched it and we haven't even been married 10 years. So good to see. Well, guys, DK is going to need all the help he can get. I think this is what he needs. Those of you who can see me on the video, you hear that? It's the Airwave Performance Mouthpiece. It's a relatively new training tool that launched last year after 16 years of research. Yes, people, a mouthpiece that is designed to help you run faster. It increases endurance by reducing respiratory rate by 20%. It can increase strength by improving muscular endurance. And folks, it can reduce cortisol. I think that's stress, right? Reduce cortisol buildup by up to 50%. I mean, that's what DK needs. He's going to be nervous. He's going to be stressed. He's used to wearing a mouthpiece, right? Oh my God, this is perfect. Airwave, get this thing to him. It's his only hope. You can go to, and if you guys want to try it out too, it's for distance runners, but I assume sprinters can try it too. Airwave.com. It's A-I-R-W-A-A-V.com. Link in the show notes. Use code LR10 to save 10% off and try it off. If you want to be your best, try it out. Airwave.com. Also, in the show notes, we'll put the link to the famous clip from last week's last year's NFL game that made everyone realize how fast DK Metcalf was. Well, then briefly mention about it, while we're talking sprints, I want to talk about these high school boys that are insane. 17-year-old American boys that ran super, super fast last weekend. I mean, how, how crazy is this, John? Arian Knighton of Tampa turned pro at 16 in January, runs tw- and has been running very well since turning pro, 20.31 on April 4th for the 200. And then this weekend, he runs 999 in the prelims of the 100 meters at the Pure Athletic Sprint Meet in Florida. Middle that was windy, 2.7 meters per second win. Comes back in the final. 
Wind's a little bit high again, 2.1, runs 10.07. Pretty amazing, right? But he's not even the best high schooler in the meet, let alone the best size 17-year-old. Jalen Slade beats him in the final, runs 10.04, in the, so beats him by 0.03, 10.04 in the final, and then comes back 75 minutes later and runs a 20.20-200, which is second all-time to Noah Lyles' 20.09. It's not second all-time. For high schoolers. It's fifth all time for high schoolers. Okay. John's always letting the facts get in the, in the way of a good promotion. You guys want no fans in, at, at these meets? Put John in charge. Can we Wait, can we just call it a world record? I bet if we said it was a world record, it would be even more exciting for everyone. So J- Jalen Slade, congratulations. World record at 17 years old. Well, he's probably a world record for a 17-year-old American who... Let's call it an American record. It is the fastest, I believe, by a 17-year-old American. Usain Bolt is the only man in history as an under-18 athlete to run faster. Um, But it's incredible what you were telling. I mean, these guys are high school juniors, okay? Remember a few years ago, everyone lost their minds. Matthew Bowling, he ran 9.98, fastest high schooler ever, you know, even though it was very wind-aided. Well, Bowling was almost 19. He turned 19 the June, you know, right after graduating high school. And he had a 4.2 head tailwind. Okay. Arian Knighton is 17, and he just turned 17 in January. And he ran 9.9 with a much smaller, sorry, 9.99 with a 2.7 tailwind. So much smaller tailwind, and he's, you know, a year and a half younger than bowling was at the same time. Same thing, Noah Lyles. When Noah Lyles ran his 20.09, he was nine days away from turning 19. He was old for his grade. These guys are your average-aged high school juniors. So it's pretty phenomenal what they're doing there. Now, I do want to make a note. You didn't like... I said this in the original draft of the article. I said we need to take these times with a grain of salt because they run on Claremont. And anyone who has sprints knows that Claremont... You get some ridiculous times every now and then from there. Just the wind, the way it works there. I mean, obviously these times won't win legal, but everyone knows like the Claremont times are usually pretty freaking fast. So I said, all right, you know, maybe just let's not totally lose our minds, even though they're very impressive. But the good thing is we'll get Arian Knighton is running the 200 this weekend at Mount Sac. So against the pros, he's got Noah Lyles and... Kenny Benerick, who are the best two 200-meter runners probably in the world at this moment, they're both going to be running that meet. I don't know if they're going to be in the same heat, but he's going to stack up against them. That's going to be really exciting. So I guess I pose a question to you guys. Do either one of these two guys make the Olympic team as a high school junior? I just I don't think so because you just got to look. Like maybe, all right, here's maybe one of them makes it in the relay pools. Like it's not inconceivable one of them makes it in the final, the 100. Even that I find fairly unlikely. But you got to look at that competition. The 100 I view as a four-man race between Gatlin, Lyles, Ronnie Baker, and Trayvon Bromel. Are, are they going to beat any of those four? I don't think so. And then you've got, what, Javon Martin, the Florida State guy. Who knows what he can do? He just ran 994. We'll probably have some other college guy, maybe Makai Williams from Oregon. I don't think they're going to make it in the 100. The 200, traditionally, the 200's weaker. I normally would think, okay, these guys might have a shot. Noah Lyles almost made it in 2016, and I think these guys are about as good as Noah Lyles was then. But you look at who they have to beat. Well, they have to beat Noah Lyles now, who's a 19.5 guy. They need to beat Kenny Bednarik, 
who's a 198 guy, and he's a, probably faster than that, actually, once he gets in really fast conditions. Terrence Laird, the LSU guy, has already run 198 twice this year. I mean, that's a, are these either of these guys going to be running 198? I don't think so. So I don't think they meet the team, but that's just because the, it's really hard to make the U.S. team. It's the hardest team in the world to make. Wait, the third guy on the U.S. team has already run 19-8 twice this year in college? Well, he hasn't made the U.S. team yet, but yeah, that's Terrence Led. He didn't even win NCAAs. He got beat by Matthew Bowling indoors. Wow, this is crazy. So I, they're not making the team. I thought the 200, they have a good chance, but you're right, it's stacked at 200 right now. But it's cool to see, still to love to see one of them in the 100 th- this weekend. Um, we need to get Jalen Slade out there. He's not pro, so someone needs to reach out to him, get him a plane ticket, fly him out there, have him race DK Metcalf. You know, and there's no question in my mind he would smoke DK Metcalf. Oh, I feel com- quite confident he'd beat DK Metcalf in 100. Yeah. But yeah, that's super exciting. And then we had a couple other fast sprint races last week. Trayvon Bromel, he's starting to starting to look like Bromel might be the guy to meet, beat this summer in Tokyo. He ran 988 in Jacksonville, which is a world leader. And then Elaine Thompson Hira, uh, who hadn't been running that great when she was at the Miramar Invitational a few weeks ago. She runs 10.78 in Claremont. That was win legal. So she's announced herself. She's back on the scene this year as well. So that was pretty quick. Well, Walden says that we spent too much time on the Ethiopian Marathon Trials. and We may have spent too much time on sprinting as well. We haven't even talked about the World Relay. We should have led the show with this. It used to be a great meet. Instead, they've messed it up by taking all the distance of meets out of events out of it and then putting it in Poland in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, I don't really fault them for that, but a lot of teams skipped. U.S., Jamaica, Canada didn't go. Did you see this result in the men's 4 by one Only four teams finished. You had two DNFs and two DQs. Yeah, I mean, Robert, if if you hold a meet without the U.S. and a, a sprint meet without the U.S. and Jamaica, does it make a sound? And Great Britain didn't send most of their teams there. I mean, look here are a list of the countries that won races at the World Relays: South Africa, Germany, the Netherlands, Italy, Poland, Cuba. I mean, if you're from one of the non-sprint powers, this is probably this might have been exciting because you guys actually couldn't win some stuff and it was probably a little bit more the outcome's a little bit more in doubt, it's a little bit more exciting. But if you're a fan of greatness, which we at let's run.com are, this meet wasn't very appealing to me. If there's no if you don't have the best teams in the world, I'm not really gonna be interested in your meet. So I didn't watch very much of this. I did watch the two by two by four though, Robert, where your boy Patrick Dobek of Poland anchored Poland to the victory in that race over Kenya. They beat out, he beat out uh, the team of Naomi Korir and Ferguson Rotic, the bronze medalist, the world championships in the 800 in 2019. He teamed with Joanna Joswick to win that race. I'm glad to see that he's doing well. For those of you who don't know what John's referring to, this is the former 400 meter hurdler who had never run the 800, picked it up like in the third race of his life, wins European indoors. Actually, we found out he ran it once in high school. So, But still, cool story. Still has not lost an 800 all year because he hasn't run anymore since winning European indoors. But all right, let's get to the distance races at this USATF meet at Mount Sac. Insanity. I mean, men's 800, you've got Brazier versus Hopple plus Clayton Murphy. Oh, yeah. 
It doesn't get better than this. I mean, you guys didn't even mention Clayton Murphy in the intro, but we have the world champion racing the world's fourth placer versus the Olympic medalist. I mean, these have been the three greatest guys in the 800 meters in America for the last, what, five years? They rare, they've never raced each other, or I guess they raced year. actually, they all made the world championship final in 2019. And they obviously ran USAs against each other in 2019 as well. So they have raced each other, but not recently. So that's what makes it exciting. Also, my pick for the Olympic team this year, I went against you guys' picks. Isaiah Harris is in here. He gets to see how he stacks up against them. You got Marco Arop. He was a world championship finalist in 2019 as well. Josh Kerr, who's a pretty great 1,500-meter runner. I mean, this is going to be terrific. Michael Cerrone, who's been in pretty good form, is in there as well. So this 800 is loaded. I expect Brazier to win, but it'll be interesting to see how close Hopple is to Brazier. And, you know, are we expecting, are you guys predicting anything other than Brazier and Hopple going 1-2 in that order? I think Saruni can compete with Hopple. I expect Brazier to win. My, the two questions I have is how close, is how does Saruni look? I mean, I think he's a, a big talent. I don't know where his buddy Emmanuel Correa is, but I, I want to see, you know, can Hopple... Keep it close to Brazier. And then I don't expect Murphy to be third, but I want to see how does Murphy stack up, well, against Harris, I guess, really. But how close is he to Hopple? We haven't really seen. We know Murphy's healthy, but in terms of second place, John, I mean, Saruni's run 345 for 800 this year. He's a 45-second 400 guy. 345 for 800, that's pretty slow. He's run 345. You know what I'm talking about, damn it, for 1,500. So he's really worked on his endurance. He ran that on April 10th. <laughs> Hopple's I mean, run 342 this year, though, or 343. But he's, Hopple's not as fast as Cerrone. So, you know, I, I just – this is an amazing race. It's going to be amazing. Um, moving up in events, men's steeple exciting. Hey, we get to see Jager. I mean, I would be shocked if he doesn't look good. He's – if he's 90% healthy, he's a lock for the U.S. team. So I just want to see, he hasn't run a steeple in three years. How does he look? But what's more interesting to me in this race is Sean McGordy. You know, his teammate, he's what, a 13-0-something, 5,000-meter guy, but he's like the sixth best guy in the Bowerman Track Club in the 5,000. He's debuting in the steeple. What can we expect from him? Could he be a contender for the Olympic team in the steeplechase? I think this is a very smart move for him. You know, he's got to be pragmatic. Let's do the steeple. John, I bet you're worried, oh, he's never a steeple before. To me, as someone who's coached a lot of great steeplechasers, John likes to mock who have I coached, but I've coached, you know, quite a few of them, John, quite a few of them. And do these people have names or accomplishments? I don't even need to say names. All I know is just a ton of people that have broken the American record in the women's steeplechase. A ton did you of people. Check, did, you, did you ever coach a HEPS champ in the steeple, Robert? I mean, I feel like winning a HEPS champ title – in the steeple, I'm not going to say it's it's easy because it's not easy, but I feel like if you're a great steeplechase coach and you spent, you know, a decade at a Ivy League powerhouse, you would have done that at least once, right? I was a stupid steeple guru, John. Steeple guru, Don Cabral to compete with. Three times, I had a guy making CAs three times. So he that guy could have won it three times. Oh, Adrian Danamilla. He was good. He was a good steepler, yeah. How many steeple champs did I have? At least two. Are you really asking as a serious question? I, w- I was asking. I wanted to know if the number, w- if you had coached at least one. What's that guy's name? Chuck Heslop, who's like the steeple guru expert in terms of form. 
after he dies, they're going to try to they're going to put an extra burial next to his his gravestone so they can put my body next to it, John. Anyways, all I'm trying to say is to be honest, I knew next to nothing about steeple form. I didn't care about the steeple form. You would have the guys jump over the steeple and they instantly either wanted to do it or not. If they were if they wanted to do the steeple and were going home about it, they were good at it. 80% of the time. And then you talk have them talk to the hurdle coach. So, he's either going to be successful at this or not. It's very it's very unlikely that you know, oh, he needs a lot of time to work on it. Uh, I don't believe that. Yeah, no, Robert, I actually, I do agree with you in the sense I'm not actually worried that, you know, he's never run a steeple before. Obviously, that's concerning, but when, you, like, he's so much more talented than someone like, you know, Isaac Updike. Isaac Updike has run, okay, 747 indoors for 3K. That's not bad, but like 1348, 341, those are his flat PRs. Sean McGordry is so much more talented than Isaac Updike. And Updike, I'm sure, has better steeple form. But we saw this with Jager in 2012. When Jager decided to take up the steeple, we're like, all right, if this guy figures it out, he's going to be one of the best US steeplers ever because he's a guy who ran 1320 at age 20. He, we knew he was just such a huge talent that if he could just be decent over the barriers, he'd be incredible and probably the best guy in the US. And guess what? He was a natural in the steeple, and now he's the best steepler in US history. So... I'm not saying that Sean McGordy is going to be Evan Jager, but his talent, his flat talent, running you know 1306 NCAA champion in the 5000 over a pretty loaded field that year. Remember he beat Justin Knight and Grant Fisher. Like, I think that's a huge deal. And from what I've heard, like he's a pretty athletic guy. You know, he. We forgot that he beat Justin Knight and Grant Fisher in that race. Wow. Yeah. Let's go back to 2012. Jager, within four months of picking up the event, he was sixth in the Olympics. He runs 826 in his debut, then 820, only fourth at the high-performance meet. Then he wins the Olympic trials. Then he runs 806 in Monaco, and then he gets sixth at the Olympics. So to me, what am I looking for in this race over under? Definitely under 830. If he doesn't run under 830, I'm going to be extremely disappointed. And personally, I think something around the eight, you know, with, with the better shoes and stuff, I think he should break 825 in this race. Well, 8.22 is the Olympic standard. That's what he's going to want to get because he doesn't have any world ranking in this event. So, And you're going to need to be that fit to make the team anyway. But you got to remember also why he's running this event. I mean, the Bowman, they've got Grant Fisher, Woody Kincaid, and Lopez Lamont all in the 5K. I think there's probably a conversation between him and Jerry Schumacher saying, you know, you just got to be realistic. It's going to be tough to make the 5K, not impossible. You might have a better shot in the steeple. And he's got, look, Jerry and Pascal Dobert, that's... That's a great setup for an aspiring steeple. So I'm very excited to see what McGordy can do. Yeah, I think probably somewhere in the 820s is about right for him. Let's look at some of these other races. Women's 1500. Ellie Perrier. I know, John, you're a little bit upset. John heard a rumor that she was going for the American record in the 1500 in this event. He's looked into it. That is no longer, that is not the case, but. It's the problem of a journalist. You've got to chase down false leads. She'll be racing Gabrielle Dubus Stafford in the women's 1500. And women's 5,000, Molly Huddle is running it. And I also have been told, right? Oh, this is the USAT of meet. But speaking of women's 5,000, do you know who's running the women's 5,000? I think the next week at the track meet, the sound running meet? Ginny Simpson. Is this a sign that she's worried about her 1,500 meter prospects? Or does she just want to have a backup? I, or she just wait. Where is Simpson? I don't see Simpson's name on this trap meet entry list, Robert. 
I responded to a thread this morning saying Simpson was running a 5,000 somewhere. I apologize if that's false news, but what I will point out is, folks, Jenny, if you're listening or if you're if your handlers are listening to this podcast, I know what he's going to say. Oh my god! The, right, the ste- steeple, right? The yeah. 1500 steeple do- double is doable at the Olympic trials. You don't have to run. You run the steeple the first two rounds of the 1500, then you run the steeple first round, then you run the 1500 final. All in different days. You can do that double. You cannot do the 15-5 double. So if you bomb out of the 1500, you need to have the steeple as your backup. She, you're saying she's not going to make the steeple final? She's going to make the, sorry, the 1500 final? Or are you just saying if she doesn't make the team in the 1500? She's not going to make the team in the 1500, so she needs to try it in the steeple. Yeah. So, Rob, I think what you might have been confused about here, initially, so USATF, you know how I hammered them a few weeks ago? They didn't release the you know USATF Grand Prix entries until like two days before. Well, this time they released the start list for this meet on Monday. I was like, this is great. We can get some excitement building. You know, I'm very excited about this. And then almost immediately they took them down. And Jay Simpson's name was on the start list for the 5,000 when they published it on Monday. They took them down. They put it back up on Tuesday. So kudos USATF. Thank you for keeping, you know, putting out the events fairly early. And now Jane Simpson is no longer listed on the 5,000. So I don't really know what her, the whole thought process is there, but she's not running anymore. Ellie Paria though is running it and she's running against Gabriella Debu Stafford. Who's a 356 woman, you know, in pre- has, she's been in pretty good form this year. That's a showdown. I want to watch because Gabrielle Debut Stafford is world-class. And Ellie Perrier, we think she can be world-class, but we haven't quite seen it yet in a big stage. This is going to be a good test for her heading into the trials. Wait, why do we think Ellie Perrier is not world-class, John? Well, she just hasn't... What's she done in a, what she what she done on like the world stage? Okay, well, that's not really fair to her because since she's gotten really good, she hasn't had the opportunity, right? That's true. And I... Actually, I'm trying to think back. She may have, I'm looking this up right now, she may have beat Gabriella Debuse Stafford in yes. at Milrose that year. Yeah, when she ran her 416 American record in the mile. So, okay. Um I just played myself there. But she hasn't like she hasn't been able to go out in the Diamond League and really contend yet because there haven't been Diamond Leagues for her to contend at. John, a 416 mile is world class. Let's be honest. That's a 357. That's true. That's true. I mean that that is world class. But also some some of the sprints. You got Allison Felix, Shawnee Miller, Lebo in the two hundred. Ryan Benjamin first hurdle race since twenty nineteen. This meet's going to be insane. Well, can we also? I have a question. So, Sydney McLaughlin's running the hundred hurdles again. Correct me if I'm I'm wrong. Her events the four hundred hurdles, right? Like she's going to have to run a four hundred hurdles at some point this year. I'm just kind of curious. Like, when's that going to happen? What's your point? Shamira Little hasn't been running the 400 hurdles. She's got a plan. By the way, in that 800 we talked about when she ran 204 the other day, did you guys realize she went out in 57 in that? So impressive that she did that. But, John, what do you mean? I, I think part of this is the new coach wanting to appear to be the guru. I would do this, too. It's a psychological thing. Yes, you're working on the, you're working on the technique, but I think it's more you're just holding back. You're just holding back. You're building up excitement. You're making her train. Work on the, focus on other things. You don't want to find out where you are. You want to just keep delaying that. Keep focusing on the process. Keep focusing on the process. You know, I, I think it's fine. Well, I mean, I mean, Shamir Little is entered in the 400 hurdles at this meet this weekend. Like, eventually, you are going to have to run a 400-meter hurdles. I think it would be good. Like, look, I'm not... Bobby Kersey obviously knows more about sprinting his pinky finger than I do. So, 
I'm just curious, like, are we going to see it? Is it going to be a few weeks before the trials? Is it going to be next week? I just feel like you've got to run at least one before the Olympic trials, right? And when we're talking about big storylines, I mean, I think the women's 400 hurdles is going to be one of the biggest ones in track and field this year. And if you want an outrageous take, it's 12, 10 p.m. on May 5th. Here it is. Could Shamir Little be the Olympic champion in the 400 hurdles over the world record holder, over the former teenage sensation? I think there's a small possibility about it. I wish they had betting odds. I would put some money down on her as the upset pick. Wow. But speaking of bold picks, I've been picking Yared Nagus to make the Olympic 1500-meter time for I don't know how long, maybe a year on this podcast. And this weekend, we're going to see his 1500-meter debut. He ran cross-country in the winter. He's run a 5,000 outdoor and smoked everyone. You talk about delaying, delaying, delaying. I mean, the guy doesn't even have a regional time in the 1500. The ACC meet is next weekend. But he's going up to Oregon to race Cole Hawker in the 1500. This is the race I'm excited about. Screw this USAT of meth. We've got Hawker versus Nagoose. What can we expect there? There's a message board thread on this. And someone was like, well, Rojo... You know, Nagus has good 5K endurance, but he's not 146 in the 800, and he doesn't run 13, 19 in the 5,000. Why would he beat Hawker? I understand that logic. I'm not expecting him to beat Hawker, but I hope he does. I mean, 146 and 13, 19, we talked about this last week. Those marks don't impress Robert. They don't increase someone's value if you run them. So, I mean, that really shouldn't factor into the argument very much. But Nagus, so Robert, your famous prediction was that he would make the Olympic team this year but you know what you got to do to make the olympic team you either got to have a high world ranking or you got to have the olympic standard and as much as you guys don't as much as you guys like to pretend the olympic standards don't matter for some athletes they do and cole hawker and yard Nagus, it's one of them i mean hawker i think by the trials will have enough 1500s high quality 1500s that he might be able to get in on world rankings yard Nagus hasn't run a 1500 since 2019 he kind of needs to get this olympic standard which is 335 flat so I feel like this would be a pretty good opportunity if both of those guys are in it. Both of them need the standard to go after it. I mean, you know, maybe he'll have... But, like, here's the thing. If you're a collegian, say you're Yard Nagus, okay? You've got this meet. You've got your conference championships. Then you've got regionals. Then you've got NCAAs. And then you've got the trials. You don't have time in that series of championship meets to go and run a 334 or something. So he either really needs to do it at the Olympic trials themselves, which is possible, or he needs to do it at this meet. I think kind of the pressure's on for Yard Nagus to get an Olympic standard here. That's a good point. He needs to run fast because he's not going to have any... This is his only time trial of the year, right? Before the trials. There's not time to do another one. I don't think so. I mean, you got the ACC meets will be in like two weeks. I think this is pro- this is going to be your best chance if Cole Hawk is in there. I assume Oregon's going to want to make it fast for him. Yeah, this is his chance. He's only a 338 guy. He is an NCAA champion. That was two years ago, but this is... Big step up in class. It's hard to say that when he's competing against a college guy who's, what, three years younger than him. But exciting race. And, I mean, as much as we talk about Hawker, he doesn't have the standard. I think finally it goes down. I think they get it. I mean, because I think it's going to be a goal in this race. I I just think they're going to have the pacing. They're going to set it up. But one thing about that world ranking, John, and again, we're going to publish this article about who's got the standard based on the rankings. There's something wrong with the ranking. If you can win two NCAA titles during the qualifying window, plus make a top three of the U.S. Olympic trials and not have the, not have the world ranking to get to, into the Olympics. It's absurd. Someone who wins two NCAA titles 
Oh, I guess I guess he may not win the NCAA title if Hawker's in it this year. But I would think that the ranking would take care of itself if they properly value these meets. But what we said before is they don't properly value the importance of the USA Olympic trials, and they don't properly value the importance of the NCAA meet and how tough those meets can be, um, particularly on the sprint side for the NCAs. So over under, what do you think, John? Three thirty-five. I mean, this is assuming they're actually going for the standard, and we don't know this for sure. But if they're trying to hit the Olympic standard, I think they'll do it. I I think I've learned to stop betting against Cole Hawker. So I think he'll do it. I think he could get the collegiate record, which is 334.72. I'm not as confident about Nagoose. Just I know he's a monster talent, but he's... You know, he was training, he ran at the NCAA 10K, you know, sorry, the NCAA cross country championships in the middle of March. So I just don't know if he's going to be in 334 shape right now, the first week of May. Yeah, it's making me, I was a little bit worried that he hasn't raced any shorter races all season, but then I'm like, maybe they have this plan. Maybe it's all been focused on this. It'll be interesting to see, um, you know, which, which, which way it goes here. Well, I know Sean, like Sean Carlson, his coach at Notre Dame. Look, he's been thinking about Olympic trials. They they've had this plan in place. They know, okay, we're gonna do cross. Then we're gonna get, you know, that'll be their base phase or whatever. He ran really well across. All of Notre Dame did. They got second, and then they know they've got the Olympic trials. They know that's a realistic possibility that Nagoose could have made that team. So that's certainly been factored in. The one thing that's the complicating factor is getting the standard because. You know, you need that standard to be on the team or have a high enough world ranking. Maybe they're just saying, hey, we hope the trials race goes pretty fast, but three th- running 334 at the Olympic trials, that doesn't happen very often. All right, before we get to the Ritzenheim interview, we'd like to give a shout-out to Mexico's... And damn it, I, I, I took two APs in Spanish in high school, but I, I'm not a good pronunciation of the language. Tonatui Lopez. He has broken the national record at the Kansas City Qualifier, won his own national record, 144.40. That caught my eye. And also, I loved how Eric Sawinski, he was third place. He listed his sponsor there. He's Eric Sawinski, comma, free agent, 147.50. So if you want to sponsor somebody, folks, give Eric a call. But I, this national record, you know, obviously Mexico is not known for their 800 prowess, but I think he's 23 or 24. I just love this guy's progress. 2014, 150. 2015, 148. 2016, 146. 2017, 145, 51 national record. 2018, 145.04 national record. 2019, 145.03 national record. 2021, 144.40. So he's setting the national record every year. Well, he didn't, not in the COVID year. But this is just chopping down your PR every year. So very consistent. I don't know who's coaching him, but where he trains. Good work, buddy. Robert, we gotta we gotta use your favorite saying here. If you keep improving, eventually you will break the world record. So one forty point nine one, borrowed time. Yes, my other f- favorite saying is twins are amazing, and I want to give a shout out to the Schonenborn twins in Germany. They've gone one two in the German national ten thousand meters, with Rebea getting the win in thirty two fifty five, with Deborah second thirty three oh two. And from a few weeks ago, guys, the 100-mile world record fell to Alexandra Sorokin of Lithuania. I just want you, since we don't really follow ultra running now that closely, I was going to give you all this task. What do you think 
I'm going to act like this is a consulting interview. You guys are Ivy League graduates. You're in there with McKinsey Consultants. You're 23 years old. They want to hire you. All, they give you questions to, to test how you think. They don't expect you to get the right answer. So, John, what do you think the hundred? What pace per mile do you think the hundred mile world record comes out to on the What side? surface was this run on? I don't know. It's just outside. Oh, All excuse right, me. Like on road, a track. On a track. On track. Okay. Well, you got to think. A few week, a few months ago, Jim Walmsley, he was trying to run right around six flat per mile for 60 miles, right? A little under that to get the 100K world record. So it's defi- by definition, it's going to be slower than that. I'm going to say 627 per mile. Well, this is looking perplexed. I immediately, my head thought, oh, six minutes a mile. And then John threw out the thing about Walmsley, so obviously it's way higher. But, yeah, this ultra running 100-mile stuff. I don't know, some guy, didn't a guy named Zach Bitter, wasn't he going to break it? I feel like if an American goes after a record, it gets a lot of attention. Then some foreign guy breaks it, no one gives a shit. I think Bitter had the record. He may have been broking his record. Well, it's interesting, because you think of a marathon, the world record is what, like 440 pace, basically? And then you double it to a oh, 100K is what? So it's around six minute pace. Then you go to 100 miles. How much more are you slowing down? Anyways, it's almost exactly 645 per mile. He did it in 11 hours, 14 minutes, and 56 seconds. So he's four seconds short of 645 per mile. Did I get the job, Robert McKinsey, the consultancy position? No, John, but I've got you a job as the CFO of Prickly Pears, and you'll be given. Three million dollars. Prickly Pears is not even a company, Robert. I don't understand how you. It's Picky Bars. Picky Bars is what the company is called. But John, we had the Prickly Pear invite, so maybe that's an opportunity. We'll start Prickly Pear Bars. All right, we'll take two million for the company right now. It's been incorporated. John is the CFO. <laughs> I'm the marketing guy. Robert, it's the brains behind this thing. Just make sure that when you file, I hope you file the, the correct name and didn't, when you're filing the papers for prickly pear bars, you didn't accidentally call it picky bars because you guys were confusing the two. And this 100 mile record for 645, did you guys used to do this a lot when you're really competing? I'm like, oh, that's a record I could have gotten, I could get. I just feel like, I'm, I, I know I just pissed off the whole ultra community. I'm like, oh, that one seems doable. That one seems doable. A lot of these other ones, you know, the more I get to know them, I'm like, no way in hell. But I'm like, 100 miles, 645 a mile? Oh, sounds doable. My, my thoughts were always, I probably couldn't do this, but any half-decent distance run, I could do this. Like, you take the, all the pros and just had them train for this stuff, and they could get it. And I've slowly come around to the fact that, like, that's probably not true. I still do think, like, Look, 50K, I don't really consider that a true ultra marathon. Like, we all know the best marathons in the world would smash the 50K marks, as we saw with Des Linden. But even like, I don't know, 100K, I feel like if you put, if like the marathon was now just the 100K and that's what all the best Africans and all the athletes around the world train for, yeah, I think it probably still, you'd still, you get a mix, right, of the best ultra runners, but I think you'd also have some of the top marathoners in there. But yes. I don't think it's as easy as just saying, oh, anyone could get this if they train for it, you know? It seems doable, but it's like you can't run a 10K at your 5K pace just because you can run a marathon in sub-three hours. This is basically four sub-three-hour marathons continuously without stopping. One marathon is hard. Imagine doing three more. It's pretty insane. And then if you stop or take a crap or anything. Yeah. I mean, 100, 100 miles is different from marathon. That's You're starting to get up serious amounts of running there at that point. 
I'm just, I realize I'm just bitter that I didn't start like Matt Myron and make hundreds of millions or prickly pear and make tens of millions. Cause my last item before we get to the rich item is the most ridiculous prize purse ever. I started a thread on this. A woman this weekend in the U.S. in Nebraska has run a 301.47 marathon and was paid $2,000. Kind of crazy, right? Yeah, what race was this at? Some marathon in Nebraska. Wow. Well, that, I mean, I guess that would have qualified her for Boston, though. We looked at the Boston. I mean, it's a tough year to qualify for Boston. Wait, you guys plugged this in the intro, so you have to talk about it. Like, Yes. So there was a debate when I asked Weldon, I asked Weldon what he thinks, see how his good, his instincts are, because he didn't make a prediction on that time. So people, this, someone started a, a big thread on Let's Run. It's like 15 pages long. It's like, what would the Boston Marathon cutoff time? So the time is always fat. You have your qualifying time. If it's like three hours and it's like, you have to run like 258 normally to get in, like a minute or two faster than that to get in, actually get accepted. And people are saying, what's the cutoff going to be this year? Is it going to be way faster because the field's limited to only 20,000? Because the people in Boston are not following the science and they're just making up arbitrary numbers to how, as to how large the field can be. So some people were saying, well, it's going to be way faster. And other people know because there's more marathons in the fall. You're going to also have, you're going to have, you have got Boston, you've got Chicago, you've got New York. Like maybe there aren't that many people interested in running Boston. So Weldon, do you think it was significantly faster? And give me your prediction as to how much faster. Seven minutes faster. Okay, Did you Weldon, see that somewhere? Weldon clearly cheated. No, I didn't. Boom, baby. I know running like the back of my hand, baby. I just, it was obvious. The Boston Marathon qualifying, you want to see a rant? No, if you have a qualifying time, you go to the race. They need to change their system. It's like so stupid. Hit the qualifying time, go. It's not, it's really just a rolling system. Like why even have the, it's just, I don't know. And also, yeah, 20,000, they did versus 30. The COVID science, like there's just, it's all made up. And John, listeners, Jonathan Galt on the Monday call. He's getting fed up. There may not be fans at the Olympic marathon trials. And John just, he he's coming to team reality on COVID. He kind of went off, said, come on people at some point, take your vaccine and get on with it. Can we drop that for the subscribers only, John? Do we have permission to do that? Uh, I'm going to have to review the tapes before I grant that to go out in the world. But I do, I do think it's interesting. Well, first of all, I think it's kind of like Boston. They can have a 20,000 person marathon, but they can't do 30,000 this year. Like, What's, I mean, I know that, okay, yes, the difference technically is 10,000 people, but like by the middle of October, when New England is vaccinating better than any region of the country, it's kind of, I, I don't know, that's kind of interesting to me, but it's also interesting, like some of the people, my Twitter feed was a mix of like, wow, that's a really tough time. Like if you're a man in my age group, which would be the 18 to 34 age group, you would have to run 252.13 or faster to make the team, which is not nothing, you know, that's, that's, a, that's pretty solid. And to, sorry to make the the Boston Marathon this year. And what's interesting though is there are a bunch of old timers who sort of responds to my uh, my tweet. And forgive me for calling you guys old timers, but they were like, "Well, you got to look back at you know 1980. The qualifying time for the 19 to 39 age group was two hours 50 minutes, and then 40 plus was three hours 10, and then same you know." And, 1981 to 1983, it was also 250. It was all that way all the way until 1987 when it gets relaxed to three hours. So it was even tougher to qualify for back then. But obviously, 252 now in the super shoes, um, it's still not not a layup. Yeah, we didn't even talk about super shoes. Oh, and FYI, in this Ritz interview, he talks about super shoes and how fast he could have run with them. All right. Well, let's get to that. 
Ritzenheim interview. Next up, the head coach of On Athletics Club, Dathan Ritzenheim, talks to Weldon Johnson. And let's run VIP subscribers. Excuse me, if you're not a subscriber to our VIP supporters club and you like this podcast, you might as well join the club now because you get a bonus podcast every Friday. Friday we'll be making some bold predictions for this week's action. We've got a special guest, 38-year-old Dathan Ritzenhein, the head coach of On Athletics Club, or as he joked, the only coach of the On Athletics Club right now. I'm going to try to go through Dathan's career highlights without looking them up. He should be known to most of you. He's one of the best runners in America for a generation, a high school star, two-time footlocker champion, dominated Alan Webb and Ryan Hall in one of the greatest high school classes of all time, a world junior bronze medalist at cross country, NCAA champion. I don't know how many times, how many times, Nathan? Only once. Once? Uh-oh. Yep, I only, I only ran two seasons. Three-time Olympian. I did cheat and look that one up. A one-hour half marathon, bronze medalist, the world's half marathon champs, a 207 marathoner, and now, head coach of one of the up-and-coming groups in America, the On Athletics Club. Pretty dang good. Although you forgot American record holder in the 5K. Oh, whoops. I, I forgot a big one. We got to hype your track credentials. I only had it for nine months. It was like 13 years beforehand, and then like, it's been like 13 years since, but I only, I barely, it was a blip on the screen. <laughs> That's right, 12.56, is that right? Yep, that's right. Nathan, you had an amazing career. Thank you. There's just no way around it. You were good as a junior, bronze medalist as a senior, the American record of 5K, success at multiple distances, the 207 marathon. We want to talk about your group and what you're what, what you're creating here, but real quick, what, what would you say the highlight of your career was? Oh, man, I don't know. I'm a, I feel like a relic from the past, I guess, now. But, I mean, the, my, my best accomplishment, I, I feel like, had to be the American record, but... Uh, I don't know. The longevity was a big one too. I was competitive for a long time and maybe other people probably could have gotten them in a shorter period of time. I had a lot of, a lot of bumpy road throughout the whole thing, but I just, I just kind of kept my head down and had a long career. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was fortunate to make a lot of teams and stuff like that too, but just, I don't know, having a long career was something I was pretty proud of too. Yep. You had a great career. And probably about a year ago, it's the middle of COVID lockdown. Who knew, knew what was happening then? But last February, you were still trying to compete at the Olympic marathon trials. And now fast forward just a little over a year later, you're coaching this up and coming group. You guys got some serious talent on this group. You have Alicia Monson. She's an NCAA champion. Ollie Hoare. He's an NCAA champion. Jordy Beamish. He's an NCAA champion. Joe Klecker. Uh, uh, he would have been an NCAA champion without COVID, I think. Are those all the, I think that's all the NCAA champions. Carla, uh, Leah Fallon was an NCAA champion. Oh, that's right, B- back in the day. Yeah. She was. Yeah. Carlos was a Pan Am champion. Uh, yeah. They were, they're good runners. They, they make good runners make uh, mediocre coaches look good, I think. Yeah, you're very smart <laughs> to sign on with this group. It makes you look good. But there's a huge jump, and you know this, from the college ranks to the pro ranks. And when this group was announced at the end of last summer, I think a lot of people thought, this is an interesting group. But usually it takes three or four years to a group to get established. And one, COVID shifted everything. You got an Olympics this year, 
And I think as an outsider, groups are judged by how many Olympians they have. That's the first measure, just general Joe Public measures. And you guys have, for sure for Ollie, a really good shot of getting an Olympian. But the more I look at your team, like Joe Cocker, Alicia Monson, they've got, they're sort of, I'd say, I don't know if dark horses is the right word for the U.S. trials, but the, the and everyone's running well. So things are looking up. Give me an assessment of how you view this group. Momentum is everything. We have we have some good momentum going right now. Uh, we have a really cohesive group, and uh, the athletes you mentioned. Yeah, we have we have a very broad group too, like event discipline and nationality. And for me as a coach, it's a little harder. You know, sometimes juggling different different schedules. Ollie's or Jordy or Carlos or Alicia. They they have different you know trials and things like that than the U.S. people. So. That's difficult, but I mean, they're running good right now and, and we were healthy and, and every race that they've gotten, they've, they've showed up, which is amazing. You know, like not having off races is important too, because there's a mentality to it. And, and so I think, uh, it's going to be super stressful, super busy the next, uh, six weeks, eight weeks. So we don't really know. We won't know who's on the teams for, for sure until July 1st, basically. And so um, even the ones that don't have trials, like their teams aren't named really until July 1st. You know, that's, that's all the work that we put in over the course of the, the fall and the winter. And um, I think that that's going to help for sure. And we just, we show up, whether it's the trials or Mount Sac, uh, Oregon Relays, whatever it is, we're going to show up and we do the best we can. And that's what I tell them. We, we, we control how we show up. And um, if we, if we go there and we're fit, then yeah, we're we're gonna have a good shot to make teams, and so we we only have eight runners, but I I think that pretty much almost everybody on our team has a really good chance. They have a chance at least, and if you have a chance, if your heart's in it, the people that make the Olympic teams are the ones that want it, the ones that have the fire in the eyes. There's always the most talented, you know, someone will make it, but someone always makes it who really wants it, and it's a great epic story. And I think I, we have almost the whole team. I think has a good chance. What are the goals? for the group. I'm sure you have short-term and long-term goals. As a coach, balancing those has got to be a big thing. But now that we're sort of in the season, are you just all focused on this year? What are the goals, would you say, for the group? I tried to tell them, like, there's so much uncertainty over the last year. And, you know, like, we were down in, when we were down in uh, in Arizona in February, there was articles coming about, you know, like saying the Olympics were already, can't, you know, canceled, things like that, that would rattle them. And I said, I said, look, we can't, you know, we can't control any of that. We can't worry about that. All we can do is get as fit as we possibly can. And if you, if we have that opportunity in June, that's, we have to focus on that. There's that old Dalai Lama said, you know, like if, if, uh, if you can't change it, there's no point in worrying about it because worrying is not going to change it. But if you can change it, then you can change it. So there's nothing to worry about either way. And that's why I've told them, let's, we just focus and we get fit and that's all that matters. And we'll stand on the start line and whether it's the Olympic trials or we'll make it to Tokyo and we'll compete well. But that's really been the total focus for them is this immediate month or two uh, ahead of them. Now, this is what matters. This is, this is the, the crunch time. And after that, the, we'll regroup after the se- after the season. I try to tell them always to be in the moment. You know, planning for the future is good, but just be right here right now because that's whether it's in a rep in the workout or in the race or, you know, in this upcoming season, you just, 
you can't look too far off on the horizon either. You you can be a dreamer, but you you have to also eyes have to be focused right ahead of you. Yeah, I forgot to tell everyone. Let's run nation. This is the team you have to root for through the trials, at least through the Olympics. Everybody likes the underdog. I feel like the Americans are, even though it's like grade A talent, they're still kind of underdogs. And everyone loves the story of someone who you didn't maybe was going to quite make the Olympic team who makes it. And everybody, you guys know Dathan. Now he's he's trying to make a career in a, a new industry, coaching. So I think it's a story people can relate to. That's right. <laughs> and we're going to try to bring some of the stories of your athletes to life over the next couple of weeks. And we're, we're excited about this partnership with On because I was telling you before we started this interview, like I met Olivier, one of the founders of On, like just at the running event in 2000, I don't know, I'm going to guess 12 or something. Next thing I knew, I was at his house in Switzerland. And he, I say he's like the ma- modern day Bill Bowerman, sort of tinkering with shoes. And you were saying, you know, in your interview process, you met him and it's just kind of, I don't know. It's a big company now, but it's it's still kind of got these really cool roots we can all relate to. Yeah, we have. We, I like that. We'll, we'll be underdogs, and then hopefully we'll come out on the other side, and then it'll be the next Olympics. Maybe we'll be uh, we'll have the target. Yeah, yeah. Real quickly, I mean, this thing launched during COVID, which is crazy because we we're having sort of time trial track meets last fall, but you guys didn't waste any time and. and I want to focus a little bit on your U.S. athletes now, but always running so well as well. I'll mention him. I mean, he he just won the what USATF Grand Prix three thirty three, and he was an NCAA champion in college. But he was what like a three thirty six or seven guy then? Is that right? Three thirty seven. I think it was his PR. Yeah. Yeah. So he's come down four seconds. That's a lot in fifteen hundred in less than a year. At f- oh, he's run three thirty two indoors, so that's five seconds. But it's a good coach right there. You'll soon be a journalist, too. Joe Klecker, one, that guy's got some good genes, too. His parents, I didn't realize both his parents were like ultra marathoners and marathon stars. But I thought he'd contend for an NCAA title last year. But having said that, he was a 1328 guy when he joined you. Now, 1306. Alicia Monson was, I think she was only 1531 when she joined you. Now she's 1507. Is that fair? Yeah, she was fifteen oh seven off of three weeks of running, so she's she's got more talent than I have coaching probably. But uh, she did run thirty one ten in her first ten k uh, ever, so she's a she's a super talent. They they all are, they're, and they're running well, you know, because I think that they've some some of it is like they 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 fit well with the coaching philosophy, the team atmosphere, things like that. It's just every person's different too, like and finding a balance with them and being okay with it is, 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 is it, you know, like, like I had to get Carlos to realize, like, you can't compare yourself to everything that Ali does. Ali is just an absolute freak, like of nature that like he, I could give him 120 miles a week. I think he'd still do well, but you know, like he's, he's in, you know, and his mentally he's there physically. He can do these things. Like Carlos is definitely like, we have to change. I had to change the training stimulus for him and for him to understand that like, that, that kind of training is just not going to be the same for him. You know, it doesn't matter. And you got to be okay with that. And he's started to adopt that now. And, and he's, yeah, I mean, he's looking really good now, you know, like, but it, it, it's, it's hard sometimes because a lot of these runners come from being, they come from programs and they are literally the best on their program by a lot. And they come here and then all of a sudden they're like, well, I'm not really doing anything different than all these other guys. Like, I, I mean, I'm, like these guys are sometimes I get my butt kicked. And so that can be hard for a superstar athlete to take 
you know? And so I think it was good for Ollie that he probably trained with Morgan, you know, like who would probably whip his ass every once in a while. And, you know, that was good for him and he's okay with it that sometimes Joe will do that to him. But now, you know, he's, yeah, it's just getting everybody else to feel the same way. And Jordy, like Jordy was injured his, he never made a whole season in in, uh, track. And so he's in there in innately okay with being, you know, dropped in a workout because he knows that he's, you know, he's always come along and everybody's a little bit different in that way. And so getting them to be confident in their own training, you know, that that's, that's important, I think, in coaching. Ollie, he does sound like a beast because I was looking at your results. He beat Joe in a 5k last year, like in the fall. And I was like, because I remember at the time, I'm like, oh, wow, Joe's not as good as I thought. It was a PR for Joe. But now Joe's running, I think, faster. But it sounds like things are clicking well for those guys. Uh, Ollie is a will be, you know, he's he, in, in he's going to be a, a, just an amazing 1500 meter runner for Like, I just, I don't, like, he's got some, he's got some skill set that is truly unique and to probably five or 10 other people in the world, you know, which is pretty incredible. And, but, uh, I, down the road, yeah, eventually, not not for a few Olympic cycles, he'll be a fast 5K runner. He ran a 4,200 really good meters uh, at the this past uh, March at the sound meet that uh, Joe ran 1306 at. I mean, Jerry Schumacher came up to me with three laps to go in the race and said, you might want to tell Ollie to go because he looks like – because they're going to slow him down right now. And then, you know, like things you – know, the last two laps were rough, but uh, he's – he will be there and it's just, he's so young, you know? And so, uh, but in the 15 right now, like, uh, yeah, he's, he, he's running 95 miles a week, you know, like I don't think I'd take him any higher right now as a 1500 runner, but like he can handle that and he can do 200s and he's been 24 his last yesterday for his last 200. And I mean, he's kind of got it all, you know, so, um, just kind of pulling him back a little bit is important. Yeah. I mean, are you thinking for him, like, how do I get him, contending for an olympic medal or getting sub 330 or is it just that's too big to think it's he's ready for those things now you know like it's just getting him the opportunities and like like he wants it bad right now he's got the fire and knowing that he's his first year out is important because like i want him to continue to use that this summer and because i think if this it'd be a travesty if they didn't put him on the team but if he's on that team he's going to be very competitive in Tokyo. You know, he's just, he has the tools from racing in the NCAAs. He has the talent. Uh, and he's, I mean, Ingebrigtsen and Cheria, these guys are strong, but Ali is very strong, you know, too. And I know that he'll be competitive if they put him on there. So, um, but then he's going to have to like, these, all, all these guys, like this has been a hell of a first year already. So like, we're going to have a lot of energy going into these next couple of months. We're going to have to regroup too, because from a longevity standpoint, I know in my own career, eventually you have to draw it back just a little bit to continue just to stay hungry and, and fresh. Yeah. You just threw Ollie in there with Inga Britson and Chariot. So I think. I believe it. <laughs> you're getting some, some uh, poster board material. Yeah, I'm sure that's okay. I'm used to it after 20 years. Right, it's good. I like it. Do you tell your athletes, not to hold back or you... yeah don't put limits on yourself you know and there's a process to get there no matter what like and some people are further back and it might take you know a couple of years to get there but like 
but belief is everything. Like if you don't believe it, it never happens. And it's such a cliche that they, you hear that, but like, that is really the first step to, to accomplishing something is believing you can do it. And, um, you can see it inside like Joe and, and Ali, Alicia, I mean, they, they believe a hundred percent, you know, like already, and you can see the results right away. Now we've created the environment for the rest of them. And I think it's continuing to grow and they're continuing to thrive off of each other. And, um, uh, you know, uh, that cohesiveness and, uh, um, uh, there's a, there's like a, there's a synergy that happens and I'm seeing it in the group and, uh, like Jordy is going to surprise people very soon. I mean, he's coming off from, I mean, he had his longest day he's had ever, ever, I think yesterday, but like, we're starting to find the right balance and Jordy is that kind of talent. And Carlos honestly is that kind of talent. And Leah, we just knew that she was that kind of talent. It's just taken a while to get back and, you know, we, we have a team that I think even though we don't have many people and they're maybe in a little bit of different spots of development, I, I believe in every one of them that they can do it. And so I want to see that, that they continue to, to grow in that belief. I was on Instagram and I think on made this little video and I think you had this quote, Alicia is someone who has the potential to be the next great American distance runner. And I was like, what? That's a bold statement. Yeah, I'm a bold guy. But <laughs> and so you said she ran 1507 off of three weeks of training or something like that? Yeah, like I, I would not have raced her if I didn't think she could get the Olympic standard because she had a stress reaction in her foot. Um, but we did everything in the world that we could, you know, cross training, um, running on the uh, lever treadmill, unweighted. I mean, she's like so focused so calm like the calmness is what is important for her like she's 22 i mean she has the tools mentally and physically like i just like we just need to get her stronger because she's so young right now like i mean we're really scratching the surface she ran 845 in one melrose when she was 20 years old and so like she just has the demeanor and this and physically has the skill set like she could be someone like Shalane and Dina that had long, like she has those, those characteristics up here and physically that she, if, if I, it's probably my fault if she doesn't have, doesn't do that, honestly, like, cause she has those things, you know? And so I, I don't like to put this pressure on them because that, and that's what we do as a team. We don't put time frames on these things. They're hard workers too. Everybody works hard, but like, I think uh, they're excited about having started something too. And so they, they feel like they have a little bit of ownership in it. Um, so like they wear the Jersey and um, they're trying to build something too. They were all good runners, but the continued rate of improvement, I think is, um, yeah, it's just a testament. Things are working right, but not everybody's never, not everybody's on the same track either, you know, like the same track of success. And so, but we've had to create an environment for them, which didn't exist before. Yeah, you had to create a team environment from scratch. You're the only coach on the ground. How did you go about doing that? Were you worried about it? Or does it come naturally to you? Or I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I always think I could do anything. My own career, my biggest limiting factor was my, my own like health. or like Mentally, I always stayed in it like, all the way to the end. So like from a coaching standpoint, like that almost, almost takes 
that away from me. Like I, I still have the same desire and, and focus as I did as an athlete, but just my mind doesn't have to rest now. Like from a training standpoint, my, I always am thinking I'm always, I'm always moving. Um, I always think that there's more that I can do. And, and so if I help create that environment for the athletes, they don't have to do it. Then they focus on like making this teams or, uh, focus on, you know, training and recovery. People were coming like from all different, you know, training backgrounds, different uh, levels of fitness. Some were injured. So we put them all together in July. And then now for the past uh, 10, uh, nine, 10 months, it's been, we've had a lot of success, but it, it's been, it's been busy, been a lot of work. It's, I think it's like, I, I equate it almost to like starting a, a new business. Like if you're a small business owner and you, you had a job and then you decide you're going to start your own small business, you have to be married to it. You have to like, be fully invested in it just from the social media stuff it seems like a real team that's what that's what we tried to do like we didn't want a training group you know like there's a lot of training groups we didn't i mean i had i was part of training groups so there's other training groups all around but like we wanted to create like a real team and there's other teams out there you know like bowerman track club i, I consider them a team but there's naz they're a team you know but like we really wanted to create something that was had maybe a different feel and we are small. It's very like, like the company, it's growing fast. And we wanted to have like a little boat, a, a boutique team almost of really high level people. And, um, and so we have a lot of uh, support across from other parts of the company that maybe make that easier for us, you know, for sure. Like direct line of communication to the lab or to uh, the owners or to, uh, the brand marketing people. And I think we're seeing there's like crossover success. I'm like the head of the family, I guess, so to speak uh, here, but I'm the only person in town in Boulder, but uh, we have, so Steve, I would say Steve's my direct, you know, the first direct boss there. And, and he has a boss and then it goes up the line. But I mean, when I, when they, when they, uh, I talk to the, owner the founder of the company olivier bernhard and a zoom call as a part of an interview basically i can tell in three three minutes you know like that this is the person and we had a very instant connection me and him we we talked about the needs like what he had the needs that he had to create the company and um i think just my personality type too i was always someone i was tinkering in my own training needs we both had these achilles problems all these things and and even now, you know, I like to do like, I do a little bit of that stuff. Like they send me the shoes, I play with them. So I think that there's a connection there. I mean, he's still super involved in the actual development of the shoes, even though the company has a broader leadership, but you know, he's, he's still involved in it. We have footwear development calls and he's sitting on them, which is pretty cool because, uh, you know, he, he's vested and really cares about uh, the products we put out and what we give to the athletes. Right now where we're at, I put all my energy into it, you know, like, and some of the stuff I learned from working with Kevin Hansen, for example, like, I mean, he involved his whole family in the, in everything. And I, I try to do that too, because it really is like the brain never turns off. There's not days off. Uh, there's a lot of weekends. We try to create some partnerships like we do. We have with Row Recovery where we have our own home base and I'll bring the kids in here and they'll play in the gym on the weekends. I don't have an assistant coach and I don't really want one right now. Uh, maybe, maybe eventually, but, um, but I have a really close connection with the whole team. And I think part of what's making the success that we see right now is that 
I spend a lot of time with the team, like a lot more than I think, uh, maybe, maybe more than I need to, but they've created a trust in a very short period of time because I mean, I was helping the boys move this weekend. Like they had to move their place and me and my son went over and helped them move, you know? So, um, I, I have a whole, I have an all encompassing job, I guess. <laughs> it's just child labor laws against that day then. I think, I think that he, it was voluntary. So <laughs> no, athletes can tell if the coach cares and it sounds like you're all in, which is a good thing. I would say probably the easiest criticism of your career was you couldn't stay healthy. So you know, what are you doing to keep your athletes healthy or injuries? Just, I think they're part of the game and running, but sort of what lessons are you playing from your career to the athletes you're coaching now? Injuries are part of the game at elite level for sure. I mean, no doubt about it. These guys are pushing to the limit. Um, so, but, you know, getting them to that line a hundred percent, you know, healthy is, that's a, it's hard to do sometimes, but I mean, knock on wood, I don't like ever like to say it, everybody, we have a very healthy crew right now. And I attribute a lot of that to the other little things that we've put together. Like I have a physio strength coach, chiropractor, Jason Ross, that I think is, I really think he's a kind of a genius. He designs their entire strength training program and it looks a lot different than a lot of the things that we see, uh, you know, on social media, other people doing and stuff. He's a therapist. He works on them. Very individualized training program for every single one of them. In your career, you worked with what, I guess four great coaches, Mark Wetmore, Brad Hudson, Alberto Salazar. I guess some people are horrifying that I just called Alberto a great coach, but you can't mess with his results. Kevin Hansen. Have you learned from all of them? Would you say one of them was a bigger influence in your career? I don't know. if they, Honestly, like a lot of, probably everybody says it, it looks like a big jumble of, of those four programs. <laughs> That's essentially what the training looks like. I have some very huge different opinions from each one of them on different train on training needs. And like, I think the training looks a lot different than all of them, but you could see parts of it all. And um, I think it, they were all been benef- very beneficial for me in my career where they were. And I think that I just maybe adopted a bit of a style that's, that's different from them um, in training, but also just like, like I'm not a good people person. So like, I think all of them made you feel like you were special in a certain way. All those coaches did. Um, and I think that that's something that I learned. that's really important. Coaching is not about writing training plans and it's not about anything like that. It's strictly, it's about a relationship that you can build with them to make them confident and, and then seeing how they adapt to it and making a decision. And really, I don't think that you can do it well on a mass scale i was going to ask you what percent of coaching is mental what percent of coaching designing the workouts there's a lot of time spent you know like listening to them because sometimes i get like tidbits of how they're feeling they don't have to necessarily tell me but i'll like if we're in the gym and i'm just listening to them lift and i'm watching them and helping them i i'll I'll take tidbits from what they say and it informs me about maybe how they're feeling in general and so um so I, I just don't think that you can, like a high-level athlete, someone who's super elite at this Olympic level, like you have to be so involved uh, to be able to know how they're doing all the time. And 
really the workouts do matter because they can't be stupid and they can't, they have to have sound physiological uh, principles, but like they have to believe in it. They have to feel, they have to be benefiting from, from that. And it's so easy to miss if you just map out a training plan. Yeah. For the physiological side of things, I th- how do you make sure you're doing the right thing there? I know you were coaching at what Grand Valley State and stuff beforehand. Did that help you? Or how did you make sure that you had the sort of X's and O's down? It's It, it was a slow process, you know, so I, I took about six years of slowly developing as a coach and most of it was volunteers type stuff early on. Um, and, but I learning from, so like us working for a season with Andy Powell at, when he was at U of O and, you know, working with Ed Cheserick and Mac Fleet and Parker and Trevor and Eric Jenkins, like those guys, you know, like they're so good. And then Andy's job has seemed like the best in the world. And I thought, Oh, that's what I want to do. I want to do collegiate coaching. But then I wanted to go. I went home on to go back to Michigan. Grand Valley State was really one of the best Division II. I mean, it could be probably Division One, you know. And but complete opposite. I mean, Jerry Baltus. I mean, he absolutely was uh, like he was a hustler, and that's kind of like something that I learned a lot. Like he was always going, always doing stuff. He had a very big team, but they created a really good culture. But you you almost learn more from less talented athletes because you can't just adapt the same principles to them. Like, uh, it doesn't work. And, and so I had some of the sub elite people and that was difficult. You know, sometimes they, they just, you can't just say, I'm going to give this person 80%. And, uh, and so, and even over the course of time, my philosophy changed a little bit towards away from some of the really glamorous stuff, like some of the super good workouts that just looked really cool it became a little less, just less important. And now, I mean, I put a lot of, a lot of emphasis on the volume of the sessions that they're doing, but also just like the, the, the general philosophy has changed with the caliber of runner that I'm working with now. And I think I learned a lot of those things over the years working with, as it slowly became more and more, started working with Parker and Leah and it just, it was a, like an internship into running really. And to be able to just jump straight ahead. Like there's so many things that you miss, I think otherwise. So I needed those six years really to get to the point where I could be comfortable taking over a group like this. Mentioning American record holders, that sort of stuff reminded me of the super shoes. And if your athletes start beating your times, you, you're going to have to adjust your time. You could probably take about 10 seconds off. How much do you think these shoes make a difference and I know we've and Let's Run have really praised on because they said, look, our athletes can keep running in other brands racing flats until we have something comparable. And I'm sure Olivier and team are going to have that soon. But just a few words on super shoes, you know, what you think about them, how much of a difference you actually think they make and when on we'll catch up in that sphere. The changing environment that's happened with the super shoes is it's, a, it's created a shift for sure. Um, I think the longer the event, the more it matters. I really don't think that there's substantial differences in 1500. I mean, I just, there, there might be some, but not, I don't think it's substantial, but the long ones, the long distance stuff, I mean, you see it in the marathon. I, I know I was part of uh, testing protocols for other companies, you know, like I, I couldn't have kept running for like for the couple of years if it weren't for that, you know? So 
like we have a shoe coming out. Our marathon shoe is very competitive. Like and we, we have testing, you know, like, so it makes a huge difference. And my team knows that when we train in it and stuff, the spikes, uh, yeah, like there's a fit factor that matters, but like at on, we really believe that we're going to put the best footwear on them. And we don't put a timetable just like we don't on the, the athletes. We're going to put out a good product. And so that's where we're at right now. And we're in development on those things because we, we want the best input from our team, from our, our pro runners at on. And so, uh, so I praise our, our leadership for that too, because uh, we, we, we want to step on this on the line and know that we put out a fantastic product. And so for me personally, like, yeah, I think I would have run a lot. I would have run a lot faster. I'd probably run 204, 205 in a pair of super shoes or something like that, but that's okay. I mean, I, I don't care now. Like, you know what? It's, I, I'm just happy to have a company that's helping push our, fan, our, uh, our, 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 uh, our group of runners along and, and giving them the best because it is important. Like that's, that's a big thing in this industry too, is, is knowing you're signing with someone who's gonna, um, who's going to give you a chance to be your best. And so I think that's part of the, the reason why our team is really bought into this group and, and this company as well. It's just, it's given us a, it's given us a fresh breath to know that the team, the, the leadership's got our back too. Is there anything else you want the running world to know about OAC right now? No, I say follow all of our people and uh, we're going to have some cool stuff coming out uh, in the weeks leading up to the trials and right afterwards, we got something really fun coming, I think too. So uh, I'm super excited.